About a year ago, my wife and I realized that our eight-year-old son, our oldest son, wasn't super interested in the kids' Bibles anymore. We have three kids' Bibles at our house, and we cycle through them pretty regularly, but it was obvious that he was kind of losing interest. And so we thought, well, what can we do to help our eight-year-old kind of re-engage with the Bible? And so we picked up this uh, action Bible. It's about 800 pages full of comic books, um, style illustrations, and it has all of these stories. And he looked at it, wasn't really his thing. Then we looked at a couple books that were about the Bible, and again, he looked at it, wasn't really his thing. And he said, Mom, Dad, I want to start reading the same Bible you read. Where do I begin? And so I said, okay, well, there's a couple different options. You can start right at the beginning in Genesis. We can start in 1 Samuel, and that'll talk about how the nation of Israel got its first king and what that looked like. Or we can start in the New Testament with one of the Gospels that talks about Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection. And he says, Dad, I'm going to start right from the beginning. And I said, you go, little buddy. So you open the Bible, and you get to Genesis 1-1, and it's that beautiful introduction. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And so he reads about the creation of the world. He reads in chapter three about sin entering the world. He reads chapter four about Cain killing his brother Abel. We spent a lot of time talking about brother killing brother. Hopefully it's all good at home. Then you eventually get to Abraham and this promise that God makes Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and uh, all the things following that. For 25 years, Abraham is waiting to have a son. We see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see eventually the birth of Isaac and that painful walk up the hillside. My son is reading through the book of Genesis and talking to me or my wife about it every night. Then he flips over to Exodus. And we get the great story that we've been working through over the last number of weeks. And he sees um, Moses uh, come into being about who God has called him to be and bringing the Israelites up out of Egypt and all the plagues that take place and crossing through the Red Sea. And then we arrive at chapter 20. And I look at him and it's probably end of summer, beginning of school. And I say, okay, little buddy, just so you know, all the stories are coming to an end. And we're going to start talking about a whole bunch of laws. And it might get a little bit boring. And he looks at me, and with all the idealism of an eight-year-old, he says, Dad, this is God's word. How could it be boring? (laughs) And that's the challenge we have before us this day. And Beckham, that is going to cost me either some money or some ice cream. What's it going to be later? He's frozen. Okay, let's do, let's do something fun as a church family. I've never done this before. He has a choice because I use him as an illustration. You get to choose and cheer for ice cream or for a few dollars, okay? Ice cream, cheer. Okay, Beckham, money, cheer. Oh, Bex, I think money wins out. That's what you got to work with later. But how many of us, how many of us have done the same thing? And we think we're going to be, uh, this is going to be the year we read through the Bible. And we get through all those wonderful stories in all of Genesis, the first half of Exodus. And we arrive at Exodus chapter 20 and we go, okay, here's some laws. And then we get to the book of the covenant and we go, okay, these are a lot of laws, three chapters of it. And then we say, okay, well, those laws have come to an end. And we get to chapter 25 and he's going to build the tabernacle. And then he keeps building the tabernacle for chapter after chapter 15 chapters about laws surrounding the tabernacle. And then you think, okay, finally we're done Exodus. We get to Leviticus and it's just all laws all the time. We go, I'm done. I'm out. 20 years ago, I was on my internship and the pastor there said, this is the word of God. It cannot be boring. But then what do we do with that? What do we do with this book of the covenant 
three chapters of laws, a conquest, and then what God is saying, here's the confirmation of the covenant. What does that look like? What does it mean? This story is 3,500 years old. How do we bring it to today? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family, and thank you for the book of Exodus. And as we go through the book of the covenant today, may it not be boring but may it remind us of what it means to be followers of you and that it still impacts us over 3,000 years later. So God, help me to put on my tour guide hat and to point out how beautiful this passage really is and that my words would fall down so your words would be lifted up and you would speak to each and every one of us as individuals to hear what we need to hear this day. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. If you're brand new to church, first, thanks for joining us. We're so glad you're here. There should be Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. If you're watching from home, you can grab a smartphone or a tablet and download the app so it's with you wherever you go. Exodus, super easy to find, second book of the Bible, big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. I already went through really quick, so let me slow it down a little bit and tell us what's happened. Moses has been raised up by God to take the nation of Egypt, pardon me, the nation of Israel up out of Egypt and into the promised land. We finished that a couple of weeks ago. And then there's this journey to Sinai, this journey of what does it mean to be God's people? He's rescued us up out of Egypt, but now we need to depend on him for our daily bread, for for water each and every day. Last week, Pastor Joel took us through the arrival of Mount Sinai, where we show up at the mountain and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, for four and a half chapters, we arrive at the book of the covenant. This is chapter 20, picking up in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed to it. Now, when we read this first law, there's a little bit that makes sense. If you weren't here last week or just need a reminder, the first commandment is the most important of the 10 commandments. It's in Exodus chapter 20, verses two and three. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And then you have the first commandment and you put it right beside the passage we just looked at and you can see how similar it is. In verse 23, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me. You shall not make for yourselves any gods of gold. And some scholars started looking at this and they said, okay, here's 10 commandments and here's 10 sections of laws. And the first commandment matches the first section of law. So maybe the next nine commandments will match the next nine sections of law. Unfortunately, it doesn't really work this way. You'd have to do a whole lot of interpretive gymnastics to get there. Well, this certainly is a fascinating idea. It leaves us with this question. 3,500 years later, what is the purpose of 10 sets of laws. 
Now in describing how an altar is to be built, the detail may seem a little bit strange to us at first, just stack a pile of rocks together and and call it a day. But God is doing something very specific here. He's saying to the nation of Israel, I want you to build an altar, but I don't want it to look anything like a Canaanite altar. If you're brand new to church and like, I don't know what Canaanites are, think Africans or Europeans or Asians. It's a whole group of people, basically think a small country of different nations. The Canaanites are setting up their altar and the Canaanites do have steps up to their altar, but 3,500 years ago, they didn't have underwear. And so if you were really close to that altar, you were going to see a whole lot more than just a sacrifice if you catch my drift. And so what God is saying is, I want your people to be totally different than the Canaanites. The Canaanites have steps to their altar, you shall not. The Canaanites expose their nakedness, you shall not. The Canaanites have sex rituals at their sacrifices. You will not. The Canaanites offer their children at sacrifices. You will not. You are going to look very different than the Canaanites. And so I'm wrestling through just not just this first set of laws, but all 10 sets of laws. And I'm thinking, okay, God, how does this all come together? How do we bring this all together to make sense into what is going to be helpful for us over 3,000 years later? And it struck me. See if you can catch it. These are the ways the Canaanites will worship. You will be different. These are the ways the Canaanites treat their slaves. You will be different. You starting to catch on? These are the ways the Canaanite legal system works. Yours will be different. These are the ways the Canaanites avoid justice. You will have justice. These are the ways the Canaanites oppress people. You will not. What's the purpose of the book of the covenant? The law teaches us how to live as a covenant people. The law teaches us how do we live as covenant people. As Canadians, we love the book of Exodus. We love the book of Genesis. All these stories over and over again, we get excited about them. And if you've grown up in church, you have heard them. And okay, we're gonna teach you some maybe things you haven't learned before, but you get the general gist of it. You get how Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, wants to kill all the Israelite boys and that incredible irony that one of the Israelite boys shows up in his palace and ends up rescuing his people. And you go, that's amazing. You hear about Moses in the wilderness and this bush catches on fire but doesn't burn up and God speaks to him through a bush and you go, that's incredible. And then you see God perform plague after plague after plague against the Egyptian people. He rescues the nation of Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. God provides for them every single day with food to eat and water to drink. And you think, we worship an awesome God. And then we as Canadians get to chapter 20 and we go, boring. But the Jews don't. For the Jews, this is the most exciting part. For the Jews, they love this. For the Jews, they're thinking, tell us more how to live as your covenant people. And you might look at that and go, that doesn't make sense. Who wants more rules? You know who want rules? People who don't have any rules. Now, I've heard a rumor that there is a big soccer tournament on the other side of the pond. And that makes me very excited. Now we're gathering here today. Now imagine there's a church picnic and I say, okay, everybody, we're gonna play this brand new game. You've never heard of it before. It's called soccer. And I split half of you onto one team, half of you onto another team. And I say, the purpose of this game is to get this ball and you gotta get it into that net, but you don't know any of the rules. And so what do you do? Well, the easiest way for me to get that ball in that net would probably be to pick it up and to run with it. And so I blow my whistle and I say, no, you can't do that. Only the goalies can use their hands. Everybody else has to use their feet. 
oh, okay, okay, I guess that makes sense. And so you put the ball at your feet and you kind of start dribbling with it and some six foot four guy just knocks you to the ground. And I blow my whistle again and I say, no, 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 this is soccer. You can't touch other people. They'll roll around like they're really, really injured. It's not going to work out. And so someone, someone cries out, well, Dave, if you want us to play soccer, teach us the rules. First five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They have a bunch of different names. Sometimes they're called the Pentateuch. That means five books. Sometimes they're called the books of Moses because Moses is the one who most people think wrote these five books. But most commonly, they're referred to as the Torah, which means the law. But in all of Genesis, we get, depending on which scholar you agree with, maximum 10 to 12 laws. Almost all of those are implied rather than explicitly stated. And so the Israelites are crying out, God, if you want us to be your covenant people, how do we live? What are we supposed to do? How do we show you that we want to worship you? And God says, I'll show you exactly how to worship me. I'm going to give you the laws of the the book of the covenant. Worship me, but don't build altars like the Canaanites do. Treat your employees with incredible respect, not as slaves. When someone harms you, you don't ramp up the violence, you treat it cordially. Don't oppress those who make less money than you. I must be the sole attention of your worship. You shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy and hear the special festivals in which you can celebrate me and have a break from work. Many years later, an expert in the law walks up to Jesus and he says, teacher, of all of these laws, 613 total, what do I do with them? Jesus responds, this is Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. These laws teach us how to love God and how to love people. Now in the ancient Near East, a covenant has three parts. The first is here are the terms of the agreement if we wanna think legalese. The second part is, well, why am I signing this? Am I getting a house at the end of this? Am I getting a car at the end of this? What is the agreement that we're setting out to? This is future conquest. We're jumping from chapter 20 all the way to chapter 23, picking up in 23, verse 20. If you enjoy reading word for word, I always preach from the English Standard Version. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, that I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Notice that God is working with Israel through every step of this redemptive journey. The Israelites cry out to God in chapter two and say, God, we have this slave master over us and there's nothing we can do. The only way they can be saved is by depending on God. But it's not like the Israelites arrive on the other side of the Red Sea and kind of wash their hands and say, thanks God, that was great, we've got it from here. They recognize that they're in the middle of the desert, they have to depend on him on a regular basis. But they don't wanna stay in the desert forever. 
If they want to enjoy the land God has promised them, if they want to conquer their enemies, they need to learn how do we live as your covenant people? And God's saying, you need to obey. But stop for a moment and think how great this news is. I think some of us go, man, more laws or God, I don't know if I agree with everything you're saying in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but think about what God has already done. God has saved them from slavery. They have done nothing to deserve it. God has provided for them every single day, bread in the morning, meat in the afternoon, water from rocks or streams or whatever way God so decides. Israel has done nothing. And God is looking at the nation of Israel and he says, hey guys, just so you know, the road ahead, it's gonna be rocky. There's gonna be some challenges. There's going to be some difficulties. So you can try to do this on your own or you can rely on me and I'm gonna continue to be with you. I will send my angel ahead of you. Sounds like a no-brainer to me, to put it into a sentence. Oh, pardon me, I missed a, sorry about that. Obedience is a response to redemption, not a purchase for redemption. Obedience is a response because God has already saved us. We don't obey so that God will save us. So what does Israel need to do? They need to do three things. One, they need to commit to God and say, God, we will be your covenant people. God, we believe you rescued us from slavery. God, we believe that you are the one true God. God, we believe that you are so much greater than everything else. And God says, great, worship me alone. You will not be like the Canaanites. You will not be like the Egyptians who have multiple gods. You will worship me alone. And when you enter the land of Canaan, you are to break down all of their altars, all of their places of worship. There shall be no remnants of that left. Destroy it entirely. 27. To 33. I will send my terror before you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell in their land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Once a year, we take a discipleship survey. We uh, typically take it in March or April, um, whatever month Easter is not. And one of the reasons this discipleship survey is so important for us is we wanna know how to better serve you as a church family and to make disciples. And we recognize most of you in this room have been Christians for a long time. But some of you are sitting here and you're seeking out, is Christianity right for me? Is this a religion that I can believe in? Is this God of the Bible, the God who still exists today and does he actually care about me? And whether you're sitting in this room or maybe you're watching from home, you might be thinking, this sounds amazing. I was talking to somebody this past week and quoting, I believe it's John 8, 31, 32, I think, where Jesus looks at people and he says, know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you hear this good news and you start to think, man, this might be real. This might be genuine. And you hear about what God has done for the nation of Israel, how before they have done anything for him, he rescued them. He brought them out of slavery. He provided for them on a daily basis. And maybe you hear this and you go, God, I, I want more. There is more. In the New Testament, God sends his one and only son, Jesus. And we are rescued again from slavery, not just from an evil Egyptian empire, 
but from the slavery of sin and death. And Jesus lives a perfect life so that we don't have to because we have fallen short. He rises from the dead, showing that he can conquer both sin and death. And God is saying, anyone who believes in me, whatever your background, come to me and understand what it means to be a covenant people. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, that sounds amazing. We would love to talk to you. Unfortunately, I didn't make a slide, but we, you can text us 587-912-0002 or talk to us outside in the foyer. We would love to connect with you. The good news of Jesus is absolutely incredible. For those of you who have been Christians for a while, there's a beautiful picture. I know I said this two weeks ago, but I'm gonna say it again. The conquest of the promised land is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. God is saying to the nation of Israel, when you go into the land of Canaan, I will go before you. I will defeat your enemies. They will be terrified of you. Just continue to obey me and you will continue to see more and more conquest come your way. What does that mean for us? Notice again, verses 29 and 30. Little by little, I will drive them out before you. All of us have issues of sin that we're wrestling with. Maybe we're addicted to something. Maybe it's a character issue. Maybe we just can't seem to keep relationships going in the way we want to. And God is saying, I am with you. I will go before you. I will bring you closer and closer to what it means to be a part of the promised land. And on the day after you die, a graduation ceremony and all will be perfect. This is the good news of the gospel. So there's three parts of a covenant. There's the agreement there's what are we covenanting for? And then if you agree with it, there's the confirmation. This is covenant confirmed, chapter 24, verses one and two. Then God said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Now, we did something kind of new here. As long as I've been here, I've been at Ellerslie for a little over six years. We've never gone through large chunks of scripture. This is week eight in Exodus. We're on um, chapter 24, which means we've done exactly three chapters a week. And you might be looking at the book of Exodus and going, there's 40 chapters. When are we gonna do the next 15? We're, we're doing them all next week and it's gonna be awesome. I tell you that for three reasons. One, please pray for me. This is gonna be a heavy study week. Two, doing 15 chapters, we are not gonna go verse by verse. Just will not happen. If you wanna read two chapters a day all week to see what's taking place, please do so. Three, verses one and two are a foreshadowing of what is to come. Verses one and two show us the tabernacle is about to arrive. This is what the tabernacle looks like. On the far side, you can see it's a perfect cube. And inside that perfect cube is the Ark of the Covenant where God resides. In the Ark, um, inside that place, it's called the, the most holy place. Uh, only one person can, can go and only that very rarely. The larger part of the tabernacle is twice the size of the most holy place. It's called the holy place. Uh, and there, the priests are allowed to go. And in the courtyard, everybody is allowed to go. If you look again at verse two, you'll see that there's three different distinctions that are taking place. Moses is allowed to go up the mountain by himself. The 70 priests are allowed on the mountain. The rest of the people 
you can stay down in the courtyard. And they're showing a foreshadowing of what is going to happen in these three different groups, verses three to eight. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men and the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, sometimes I talk a little bit fast and we don't capture everything that's taking place, but you'll notice there's a repetition here. In verse three and in verse seven, the people say, we believe in this covenant. We confirm that that is the case. And it's almost like a wedding ceremony. In a wedding ceremony, you have the intent and you have the vows. And so if I'm the minister and I'm, somebody's getting married right in front of me, I look at the groom and I say, do you, the groom, take this woman to be your bride? And I look at the bride and I say, do you, bride, take this man to be your future husband? And they both say, I do. The question's of intent. But then what happens directly following that? I give them the vows. I say, repeat after me. I will love you in sickness and in health for richer and poor. And we repeat that. There's the questions of intent, statement of intent, and then there's the vows, a double confirmation. Now, thankfully, at no wedding I have ever been to, nor at the law office when I signed papers to buy my house, did the lawyer or the priest sprinkle blood on anybody. But if that's your story, please talk to me. That would be an amazing sermon illustration. The Old Testament sacrificial system can be a little bit confusing, so here's what you need to know. Burnt offerings are typically made for atonement for sin. The burnt offerings are made for atonement for sin. In other words, God is saying, Moses, take your hand, take the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. I confirm that I will do what I say I will do. But then take the blood and sprinkle it on the people for they say they will do what they will do. The covenant has now been confirmed and it's time to celebrate. How do we celebrate? We do it with a meal. This is verses nine to 11. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they drank. While many of us are captivated by all these stories, I mentioned earlier that the Jewish people, this is the climax. This is the reason we're here. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, this is the covenant. This is the relationship I'm going to make with you. And we read throughout scripture, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Praise God, that's awesome. But that's one person. This is the first time in scripture that the nation of Israel says, we, the nation of Israel, will belong to your people. Exodus chapter 24, according to many scholars, the most important chapter of the book. They are confirming, God, you are our God and we will be your people. And there's something else here and I think it's amazing. Check it out. This is actually the first worship service in all of scripture. 
In verses one to two, God says to Moses, gather all the people together, and it's a call to worship. We are going to talk about what it means to be my covenant people. In verses three and seven, you have the ministry of the word and confession. Our our friends who might attend Anglican churches, um, uh, Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, there's often a time of confession. For us in an evangelical Baptist church, it's done when we sing. God, this is what our belief system is. In verse five, you have the giving of our offerings. We too give part of what God has given us um, back to the church to use for ministry here and all over the world. Then verse 11 is a sacramental meal, which symbolizes communion. Israel has become the covenant people of God. Let's finish it up. The Lord said to Moses, this is verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose up with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here until we have returned and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went onto the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The number 40 comes up quite regularly in scripture. The first time we hear it is at the flood where the rain came down for 40 days and for 40 nights. We hear about Moses going on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites are gonna wander through the desert eventually for 40 years. This one's cool. Goliath went out and called out the people of Israel for how many days? 40 days. And Jesus himself goes into the wilderness for 40 days. This regular repetition of the number 40 means it's a time of testing, a time of trial, a time of probation, a time that we'll see next week. The Israelites fail miserably. That wraps up four and a half chapters. What does it mean? For any baseball fans out here, it's almost like fielder's choice, where I can say any one of these 10 ideas, I can talk about the confirmation, I can talk about the future conquests. One of these uh, laws that we didn't look at, if there's any bankers in the room, you're the only people who aren't going to like it. God says, you shall have no interest on any loans ever, and the people rejoice. Unfortunately, I can't enforce that. I could talk about hospitality, something we've talked about all fall long so far, about how God welcomes people into his home, about how God welcomes people into a covenant relationship and how we too can turn around and welcome people into our homes and meet them for coffee and share with them the good news of Jesus. But that's not the main point. What's the point of the book of the covenant? That we would embrace the joy of living as covenant people. The nation of Israel has gathered together. They have received the book of the covenant. They have received an enormous amount of laws and they don't respond by turning tail and running away. They respond in worship. And they say, God, this is so great. Of course, we will be your people. It's the climax of the entire book for the Israelites. The news is even better for us. In chapter 24, Moses sacrifices an oxen and he takes that blood and he says, this blood is going to represent the covenant of the relationship that God has between his people. 
And if you do not follow the covenant, you will be sacrificed just like this bull was. And God says, I'm all in. So he sprinkles the altar. And the people say, we're all in. So he sprinkles the people. But the people aren't all in. Next week, we're gonna learn the people fail miserably. But God said he was gonna destroy them and he doesn't destroy them. He waited. Patiently, he waited. For 1,500 years, he waits. And he recognizes they're never gonna be okay. So he sends his one and only son, Jesus. And he says, where you have fallen short, people of Israel, Jesus will not. While you sin regularly, my son, who is fully God, fully man, will live a perfect life. And all of my anger against humanity, all of my wrath for falling short, will come upon the person of Jesus. And it's Jesus' blood who is sprinkled all over the cross. And it's Jesus' blood who covers our sins and he triumphantly raises from the dead three days later. And here we are, three and a half millennia after this story, embracing what it means to living as a covenant people. What a joy it is and how great the salvation to be a follower of Jesus who loves us so much that he dies for our sins. That's the book of the covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to follow you. Sometimes we look at all these laws and all these rules and all these regulations and we say, God, it is so hard. So God, we pray and ask for forgiveness for where we have fallen short this week, where we have sinned against others by word or thought or deed. God, we pray and we ask forgiveness for not doing the good that you have called us to do. And God, we praise you and we thank you for even though we have fallen short, you sent your one and only son to die in our place and that he triumphantly rose from the grave and said, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I have conquered sin. I have conquered death. And that's the joy we have of being a covenant people of God. So may we go out and share this good news. May we go out and share that hospitality of what it means to be a follower of you. And may we embrace the good news of living as people of the covenant. We pray this in the powerful, life-giving, awesome name of Jesus. Amen.